Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basaud. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in London in the United Kingdom, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Signor. Uh, Mark is an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto, and he's a psychiatrist working at the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto in Canada. And we're talking to Mark today because he's written a very interesting paper with some co-authors, um, and the title of the paper is What the Highest Rated Movie of All Time May Teach Us about portraying suicide in film. And um, it's a, it's a uh, paper well worth a read and it's, it's very entertainingly written, but it's about a very important subject, which is how media portrayals of suicide seem to influence, and a lot of people don't realize this, actual numbers of suicide uh, in the population. And Mark's been involved in some research on this. Uh, but first of all, Mark, let me ask you, why did you publish a paper on a film, a popular movie, in an academic journal? Should academic psychiatrists take films more seriously. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I, I um, uh, you won't be surprised, I think, that the answer, in my view, is yes. Um, I think the, the issue is, as you pointed out in your introduction, um, that media portrayals of suicide can have a very large impact across a population. Um, the, the most well-described phenomenon like this is uh, the death of a celebrity. So, for example, when Robin Williams died by suicide, there were nearly 2,000 more suicides than expected in the next five months um, in the United States. And actually, the same was observed in Canada and, and Australia, the only two uh, countries, to my knowledge, where it was studied. Um, and um, while the strength of the evidence is, is really stronger for uh, those kinds of real-life um, news stories, there is fairly good evidence now also that even fictionalized portrayals can have an impact. And um, the most recent famous example is the Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why, um, which depicted the suicide of a teenager. Um, and it violated many of the recommendations of how to do that safely. And unfortunately, after it was published, there was um, a 15% increase in su suicides in youth, particularly in young women in the United States. And then we published a paper also showing that there was um, an increase in youth in, in Ontario, Canada here. Um, so I, the key thing is that, you know, we're, our whole population is influenced by messaging and by stories. And certainly it can be influenced by things like movies. And since uh, The Shawshank Redemption is such a highly rated movie and actually has so much suicide content, we thought it might be a helpful model to, to talk around those issues a bit. And so one of the reasons before we get into discussing the film and the paper in more detail is that you're saying that um, people who write movies and write books have been complaining um, that there's too many kind of restrictive guidelines, given that there's a well-known link as proved by research between portrayals of suicide, particularly the way people kill themselves and um, subsequent rises in suicides in the population. Um, writers, novelists, film producers have complained that these guidelines about the portrayal of suicide are too restrictive. And also they, they're not sure what they can do. They keep being told what they can't do. Could you say something about that? Well, that's exactly right. And it's, a, it's something that, you know, I've definitely spoken to a number of different people in the media about um, uh, I, the Canadian guidelines that were published by the Canadian Psychiatric Association in 2009. One of their suggestions to, um, to journalists when they were talking about suicide was to avoid exciting reporting. And one of the pushbacks from one of um, the, the top journalists here in Canada, um, he, he said routinely, well, what do you want us to do? Boring reporting. Um, and so it, it really is a tricky issue. The way that I would frame it is that um, we've been spending a lot of time working on defense. So what happens is you have a story which is very dangerous and concerning from a social learning or imitative uh, acts uh, perspective, usually uh, involving a, a death in a highly identifiable person like a celebrity. 
And then we're working really hard to ask journalists and entertainment media providers, like in the case of 13 Reasons Why, to try to take some efforts to um, change the way that they're doing it to make something that's very harmful, maybe a little bit less harmful. Uh, I, I think the answer to your question actually is that we need to try to move from a defensive posture to a posture of offense. They wanna create excellent content. And we actually have a much better understanding now of what sorts of content can actually be helpful. And so I, I think what we need to do is to do a better job of telegraphing to people in both the news media and the entertainment media, what those kinds of healthy and helpful stories are. That way they can present them. And, and actually, if you're presenting a healthy narrative, um, it may be that some of the nitpicky details that we, we fight with journalists over become um, a little bit less important because um, the most important thing is really to present a narrative of, of mastery of, of suicide and survival. And you um, have been involved in research which has um, uh, been able to take a more nuanced view of the portrayal of suicide because the, the feeling before was that mentioning suicide in a particular um, going into the details of the, the way someone killed themselves um, seems to lead to increases in suicide rates, which you were involved in some research which showed that certain kinds of reporting led to decreases in suicide rates. And in particular, there was this effect, the term of which um, I think the authors of your paper, uh, which you were one, coined this term, the Papagino effect, um, which showed that a particular kind of story led to decreases in suicide. Could you tell us something about the Papagino effect? Well, that's right. And probably to understand the, the uh, Papageno effect, it's probably worth understanding the more famous effect, which is the, the Werther effect, uh, uh, or Werther, um, after the Goethe novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther, which uh, was published now 250 or so years ago, um, in which uh, a man with unrequited love, um, you know, a young man who was rejected romantically in despair at the end of this novella, um, sits at his writing desk and ends his life. And after that uh, book was published, there was a spate uh, of uh, young men who were rejected romantically, who would dress in the stereotyped clothing of Werther and end their lives at their writing desk in the same way that he does. And so this phenomenon of, um, of suicide contagion or imitative suicide has been called the Werther effect. But the key thing is that social learning is, uh, can go in any direction. So if we show people a how-to of, of how and, and quote unquote why to die by suicide, um, for example, also in 13 Reasons Why, um, unfortunately, a small number of people will take that very seriously and will act on it. Um, the Papageno effect is really the opposite. So it, it's named after um, a scene in Mozart's Magic Flute in which Papageno, this, this character, is in despair, actually also because of, of a love issue, um, and he's about to end his life. And then these three boys come and they say, Papageno, don't do it. You can survive. Use your magic bells, uh, whatever those are. Um, and, uh, and he chooses to live and he survives. And it was uh, coined by um, my colleague, Thomas Niederkrotenthaler at the Medical University of Vienna, now a, a decade ago in a paper in the British Journal of Psychiatry, um, where he observed a really interesting thing in Austrian um, news reports. And what that was, was that um, articles about, so he, he, first of all, he found what everyone else finds, which is that the doom and gloom articles of death were associated with increases in suicides after they were, they were published. But 9% of articles in the Austrian media um, followed what he called the mastery of suicide uh, crisis kind of category of articles, which were about people who were in a crisis, they were really not feeling good, they were suicidal, but then they realized something was wrong and they acted in some kind of adaptive way and they didn't act on their suicidal thoughts, but they, they got help or they found a way to overcome it and they survived. Um, and after those kinds of articles were published, there was a small but statistically significant drop in suicide across the entire country of Austria. 
And um, that obviously got me very interested reading that article. And, and I've now worked uh, very closely with Thomas, who was also an article, uh, an author, along with um, Stephen Stack on the paper on Shawshank Redemption. And so we've now published a number, or at least a couple of papers, um, which have showed exactly this dichotomy, that when you spread messages of doom and gloom and hopelessness across a population, you will see increased suicides. Whereas when you present stories of survival and resilience and suicidal thinking, but without behavior, um, that, that you often see a reduction in suicides. So there's a sense in which some reporting with suicide content actually inspires people to not kill themselves, as it were, in a sense, that's what you're saying. Well, that's, that's, I mean, I think the issue is that you can think of our entire media landscape in some way as an exercise in social learning. I mean, I know people don't read newspapers really anymore, but you still consume the same content. So if you think about you know, the, the first section might tell you where to vote and the second section of you know, business might tell you what to invest in. And then the fashion se section, people look at it. And not everybody's going to dress the way the fashion section talks about, but a few more people are going to look at a, a picture of some new clothing item and they might say, that looks nice, I'll try it. And so, so much of our media is really some kind of exercise in us understanding what everyone else is doing and deciding whether we want to copy that. And if we, if we see portrayals of people who are in very rough situations, finding ways to be resilient. Um, that certainly, uh, hopefully, and, and there, there appears to be at least emerging good evidence um, that some people will look at that and say, hey, that person survived even though they were in real difficulty. Maybe I can too. So let's now talk about the fact you, you decided to analyze this film, The Shawshank Redemption. And um, you describe it as the highest rated movie of all time. And it does certainly rank number one in many different ratings in terms of popularity of particular films. And you're referring to the number one film of all time, according to users of the Internet Movie Database, IMDb. Um, now, when I first read this paper, I was surprised because I didn't think, although I've seen the film many times, um, of the Shawshank Redemption as being about suicide. But then, interestingly, when I read your paper, it completely changed the way I looked at the film. Now, there's a spoiler alert coming up because we can't escape the fact that in discussing some of the plot content. If you haven't seen the film, we're going to spoil it a little bit for you. So you may want to um, close your ears for the next five minutes or so while we explain some of the plot content. But um, let's just start with this first point that you, you're looking at the film through the lens of the idea that actually suicide or suicide thinking is, is partly what the film is about. And I never thought about the film that way. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'll, I'll um, confess that I was in the same shoes as, as you. I, I had probably seen the film five or six times um, before I became a suicide prevention researcher um, and never thought of it as a suicide film either. Um, but then I watched it a few years ago. I rewatched it um, and, uh, and it really jumped out. And, and so the issue is that there are really four characters in the film who at some point have either an actual or implied suicide crisis of which two actually die by suicide two minor characters, and then the two main characters survive. And so the, the quick run through of that is that there's a, so the, the plot of the film is about a banker who's um, uh, wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife and he's in prison for many decades. Um, and, um, and so one of the themes of the film is institutionalization. And there's a, an older um, gentleman named Brooks who is released after many decades in prison and he can't cope with, or at least he feels he can't cope with, um, you know, the non-institutionalized life and, and he takes his life. Um, and then the warden of, of the prison who is a villainous character in the film, uh, he, he becomes exposed and rather than being caught by the authorities, he kills himself as well. So there are two actual suicides that you, you see on camera in the film. And, and some of what we talk about in the, um, 
in the paper is whether those, you know, those more minor, uh, in a way, uh, events in, in the film are still potentially somewhat problematic. I mean, we see, for example, people who are um, charged with crimes, for example, taking their lives at higher rates than, um, than, than you know, you would expect in the general population. And we certainly don't want to telegraph that just because you've gotten yourself into some kind of criminal legal difficulty um, that you should end your life. We want people to, to find ways of, you know, making amends if they've done something wrong and, and hopefully surviving. Um, so th there are issues with those portrayals, but the main portrayals of the film, and I think the reason why you and I both didn't initially really think of it as a suicide film, um, are in the two main characters, Andy, the, the banker who's jailed wrongly, um, and Red, his, his uh, sort of best friend who he befriends over his decades in, in prison. Um, and what happens is there are two scenes in the film where it's implied um, that, that each of them may be about to take their own life. Um, and then something surprising and unexpected happens. So in the case of Andy, he escapes from the from the prison, which is the climax of the movie. And in the case of Red, he's actually in the same situation as Brooks, that older character who was institutionalized and who had um, who had died by suicide. And he climbs up on a on a on a stool, and you think he may be ending his own life. And instead, um, before Brooks dies, he carves in a rafter. Brooks was here, and Red carves, uh, so is Red, and then he leaves and, and chooses to survive. And Red's main phrase in the film is, there's a simple choice, get busy living or get busy dying. And I, I think, um, you know, in, in a way, the, the, uh, the, the end of the film really suggests to people that uh, in a very beautiful and powerful, but not, um, not stated, really just presented way, um, that when you feel like you should get busy dying, actually, you should get busy living and you can survive. And I think because the message is so much about survival, in a way, the suicide content feels a little hidden. Um, you're, you're kind of saying that um, the fact that people confront great difficulty and think about suicide or come close to suicide, and there's a sense in which what's interesting about this film, and it's, it's a testament to Stephen King, the, the original author of the original plot, um, is that the, what's interesting and maybe different about this film is that these two characters come very, very close, but don't actually do it. But you, you are, you're set up in the audience is you think they have almost no option but to do it. So I think there's a particular poignancy to the point you're making that is exemplified by this film perhaps more than any other, which is the plotting is that you really think they are going to do it for various reasons, and then they don't, um, and they, they, they survive and and as I say, it's a kind of Hollywood um, happy ending. And any thoughts about that? Because there's something about the psychology mechanics of this film that I think are particularly interesting in terms of psychological analysis to try and understand why is this film uh, the number one film of all time? Well, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, all good narratives involve some kind of identification. You identify you know, probably with the protagonist, I suppose occasionally people identify with the antagonist of a film. Um, uh, and, and actually, um, uh, Thomas Niederkrotenthaler, um, his work along with his colleague Benedict Till, they've done a number of um, experimental studies which really show that the effect of media on suicide on people really is often mediated by um, that, that key factor of do you identify with the person. And so if you can, you know, imagine yourself as someone who may be suicidal who, or, or have had that issue uh, watching the film, you can see them potentially identifying with these characters and saying, yeah, I've been in such difficulties and I could totally see why they would, they would act in that way. And and, you know, maybe that's how you should act. And, and that's sort of the, the, the middle um, kind of question of the film. And then when they survive, you know, the hope is that people say, yeah, you know, they, they went through hell and, and they got through it. And, and maybe I can get through and it's 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 beautiful and it, it's happy. And it it creates that kind of emotional resonance where uh, 
um, you know, a, a sort of a grim and dark story turns into something unexpected and and um, and meaningful and powerful. Um, so um, it, it's we're gonna, I'm going to enter dangerous territory here because obviously Stephen King is a multi-million pound selling uh, best-selling author, and who am I uh, to critique him? And he tells fantastic stories and they're gripping films. But the other thing I find very interesting about many of his plots, and this doesn't just apply to him, but let's talk about him as a uniquely successful storyteller, is that he's doing something, he must be doing something psychological with the audience that explains his success, because a lot of the plots, if you think very hard about them afterwards in a cool, analytic way, don't make a great deal of sense. I won't go into uh, murder the Shawshank Redemption, but there are many, many elements of the plot that really do not make any sense. I'll just pick one perhaps cruel um, uh, uh, critique, which is that in this prison of hardened criminals, um, there are so many really quite functional people who are charming and, and graceful and, and have poise, um, including, of course, the two central characters. And yet, um, you know, the, the, this is a, a hardcore prison filled with hardened criminals. It's really quite amazing how wonderful all these people are and how you'd want to befriend them. And I'm really not sure that's really the kind of character you meet in a, in a place like that. But somehow, for various reasons, you just do this suspension of disbelief. So he's a master at the art of getting you so um, in, in engaged in the story that you forget about these um, flaws. Now, it, it goes to a central problem at the heart of therapy, this point I'm making, which again is illustrated quite nicely in another film, um, House of Games, where a psychiatrist is, plays a central role and a con artist, I won't spoil the plot for people, gets involved with the psychiatrist and argues that psychiatry is a con. Um, saying that basically you try to get people not to confront the reality of life, you try to soft soak them, it's a con, because really life's impossible. Anyway, so any thoughts about any of those ideas about what's going on psychologically in this film or, or with, with, with plots that engage us that don't actually make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I really connect with a lot of the, the points you're making. I guess a couple of things, I mean, just to start with your point about Stephen King, uh, you're right. I, I mean, if you if you, you know, he draws such wonderful characters and vignettes, but if you look at them carefully, there, there are obviously flaws. I think the reason why the audience overlooks it in, in a movie like Shawshank Redemption is that, you know, often he's getting, he's, he's finding a way to cut at the core of something that's very important about the human condition. And the other aspect of this film that you, um, that we haven't touched on is actually the importance of friendship and camaraderie. I mean, one of the central messages is that the reason that Andy and Red can get through is because they have each other. And I think that's also an important message to send to people who are suicidal and feel like they're disconnected or they're alone. In fact, you know, there's always other people who are caring and willing, you know, willing to be there, um, whether it's friends and family or, or professionals. And I think that gets to the, the second part of your um, point, which is about what happens in therapy. I mean, of course, um, you know, all therapy to some extent is um, trying to get people to take a step back from their own thoughts and try to think about the world and think about themselves in a different way. And, and one of the things about things like the Verter and Papageno effect is that, um, you know, both of these are ways of looking at the world. I mean, looking at the world in a doom and gloom way is, you know, there's, there's truth in that. Um, and looking in the world in a, in a hopeful way, there's also truth in that as well. It's just that from a uh, pragmatic standpoint, in terms of what is more conducive to good health outcomes and mental health, um, you know, one of these ways of looking at it um, will do that. And one of them puts people at risk. And so, um, of course, we're trying to influence people with psychotherapy. And like everybody, all other doctors in medicine, you know, we're trying to influence people in, in ways that will hopefully preserve their health. 
And this goes to a, a, a point I want to discuss with you, which is about a flaw at the heart of therapy, because, for example, the current panacea of all ills as described by CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, a manualized therapy that is dominant across the world. Um, the, the central thesis is that we can argue people using rationality and logic into taking a more pragmatic, rational approach to their lives, and then they won't have irrationality and and um, be upset. But one of the flaws at the heart of that therapy and many is that basically therapy requires uh, an ability to inspire people who want to get out of bed in the morning and wage war and, and, and fight on through great suffering. There is an emotional element of inspiration. Now, art does that. The Shawshank Redemption is a great film. It's a very inspirational film. And yet people are recruited into medical school and become psychiatrists and therapists. And it's there's no audition for are you an inspiring person? And that crucial element of inspiration, which the arts understand, is neglected, in my opinion, by the science of psychiatry, which is one of the reasons I prescribe films. But anyway, what are your thoughts about that point? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you get at a really key point. I mean, I've never really thought that CBT was around convincing people that they're wrong about everything. Although I think some, and sometimes that sort of idea can put people off. It's my sense that the, the common feature of actually all psychotherapy as a, as, a, as a base, as a start, is really to get people to take a step back, do some metacognitive awareness and try to understand maybe hidden meanings behind their thoughts or, or the idea that maybe there are different ways of looking at a situation. And, and in a way, each of our different therapies has a, has a different way of asking people to do that. And I think CBT has, has won the war, as it were, um, simply because it's just very easy to teach and it's easy to manualize. And so um, you can do that. And that's, that's a great start. But often it's, it's a necessary component of doing good therapy, but it's not really sufficient to achieve what you want, which when you're what you're suggesting, which I think is very important, which is not just to help people um, sort of understand where they may be making some um, some misappreciation of what's going on in the world around them um, and thinking errors, but actually to try to engage in a more meaningful way. And so I think, you know, I, I think it, it is a great idea to get people to engage in, in media. Um, look, I, I think I don't I don't necessarily have specific stock films or, or things that I necessarily suggest to people in part because, you know, everybody's different. And I think the messaging that each people or each person needs is, is going to be um, at least a little bit different. But I think that idea of of trying to elevate things uh, beyond uh, just bread and butter kind of simple CBT techniques uh, is certainly something we should all be thinking about. So you used the word metacognitive earlier on. So just to explain that my understanding of what you're referring to there, where, where, where psychotherapy is about metacognition, which is it's thinking about thinking. So thinking about and labeling what's going on in your head and therefore being able to produce some kind of distance from the actual experience of it and therefore be, to be able to think about what you're going through, um, which I think I agree is a very important part of therapy, a good therapy. A lot of bad therapy um, doesn't um, do that. But um in terms of the notion that you might recommend movies as, as therapy, the other thing that I do in my therapeutic practice is I ask people what kind of films have they found most inspiring or moving or what are their favorite films? Because I'm coming at it from another angle, which is that I think sometimes we can understand how to inspire people through what they have found inspirational in the past. And again, I think psychiatry very rarely does that. We, very, we take a history, but we very rarely take a kind of history of what are the, your, your favorite books, your favorite films, you know, the things that move you the most. And I think that's a very important history as well. What are, what are your thoughts? I, I think taking some kind of a media history is very important. Um, I think the, probably the reason that people don't do it that much is for the reason that you describe. We're usually um, trying to do suitability assessments for different kinds of treatment, right? And so um, 
you know, for example, if you're trying to figure out if someone's suitable for cognitive behavioral therapy and you see that they're really interested in exploring childhood dynamics and their family of origin, you might actually say, well, you know, CBT may not be the, you know, may, you may not connect as well with that. Maybe you should try dynamic therapy. Um, at the same time, I think doing the kinds of screening that you're describing and really trying to understand how people appreciate you know, the media and, and various sort of ideas that they're exposed to will facilitate the kind of um, targeted prescription of other kinds of uh, media that could potentially really help people. So we're running out of time a little bit, but one of the things I want to discuss is the attraction of Shawshank Redemption is partly also about the setting of the prison. And there's this whole genre of movies that are set in prison. So why is it that people find prison so fascinating? And I think um, partly because these are closed institutions that are away, most of us don't know, been inside a prison. As a psychiatrist, I obviously have on quite a few occasions. So I think there's a curiosity, a bit like why people are so curious about psychiatric hospitals or hospitals in general. These are closed institutions that are away from the public gaze. So people have a curiosity about that. But also um, they, they um, produce constraints and problems that seem impossible to overcome. So it's a great meet for writers to help people overcome what seem like impossible problems, which is, you know, at the heart of all good plotting. But any any thoughts about that? Well, I, I would just I think that's a great introduction to the issue of um, how does this connect with suicide, which is that people when they're suicidal feel um, it's often described as a constriction. You know, most of us think that we have lots of different options of what, what we might do today or tomorrow. Uh, but people who are in a suicidal crisis often think I'm stuck here and there's absolutely no way out and I don't belong um, and I just need need to go. And in a way, that um, constriction is metaphor metaphorically presented in the idea of a prison from which one can't escape. And, and Andy and Red are in this prison that they um, that they can't escape. And so, again, I think the, the reason why the, the suicide messaging is so powerful is that the, the end of the film is. Uh, they get out and they escape and they manage to find a way to live. And um, to me, the most, you know, I now devote a lot of my life, both in research and in, you know, public uh, sort of speaking and things like that, um, to tr really trying to promulgate that message, which will, will ab absolutely save lives, which is that there is hope that people who are struggling, um, you know, they have conditions or they have situations that we can find solutions to, um, and that there's help out there and that there's hope and people should reach out. But is it also possible that the danger of us being so anti-suicide, because we're worried about increasing rates if people discuss suicide, means that we don't, we slide past another point, which is perhaps a dangerous thing to say, interesting your reaction, which is it's understandable sometimes to feel suicidal. Um, and if I, I find that acknowledging that in therapy, people find an enormous relief because they're used to psychiatrists being vehemently against suicidal thinking. So, uh, you know, I, I, so first of all, I agree. I don't think the idea is to be for or against. Um, I think that you, you, you go into dangerous territory there. I, I mean, I, when I do an assessment of my, uh, my patients, you know, for the first time, often what I really, really try hard to do at the end of the session is to sort of feed back to them with a, you know, dynamic life narrative or something along those lines of why it's sort of obvious that they've ended up here, that all of the situations and, and you know, maybe biological vulnerabilities and so on um, have really made it very understandable why they're there. And I think it's important to validate people, um, especially in the office and especially in the therapy. Um, and I think, you know, there, unfortunately, there, there's just, there, there's a lot of that validation out there um, that, that really is the, you know, the only content that we've had out in the media for so many years and decades, which has been, it's understandable to kill yourself. And I think, whereas in the clinician's office um, with a, you know, sort of thoughtful dialogue that can go really well. And I, I think that that kind of messaging may have a place in, in the larger media landscape. 
it's just that there's been so much focus. Uh, and again, I don't mean to keep coming back to 13 reasons why, but it's such a good example of that, of how we just keep sending people the message that, hey, if you're suicidal, it's very understandable if you end your life, um, that we really need to dial that back a little bit and, and try to promulgate um, some more healthy narratives. So one final question. Um, you made a point when we were having a chat before we started recording that the, one of the things that's missing in the portrayal of mental illness in movies or mainstream media is the idea that you can have a mental illness and still have a perfectly functional life. It doesn't have to dominate your life or it doesn't have to define you as an individual. It, it tends to be the case that when characters in films have a psychological problem, it takes over the narrative of who that person is. They get defined by that psychological problem. And you said you'd like to see a character sort of turn up at work, go home, maybe have an eating disorder, but, you know, it's like a part of them, but it's not them. It doesn't define them entirely. Could you say something about that? Well, that's exactly it. I think we've moved through a transition of media where, you know, starting with something like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, which, you know, literally presents people, um, uh, you know, who have mental health problems as being cuckoo, you know, it's in the title, um, and sort of this, this really uh, stigmatizing and uh, archaic view of, um, uh, you know, in sort of insanity and institutionalization. And I think a lot of the media now has, in a healthy way, shifted towards uh, more evidence-based and scientific understandings of how people suffer from mental health problems. But they're, you know, they're splashed over the screen as though that's the whole entirety of a person's life. And I think that, you know, where I hope that we, you know, that, that that's a transition um, to just, as you point out, making this um, something that appears, um, but um, constantly uh, at some sort of baseline level, presenting characters as having mental health challenges that they're, you know, that they overcome, which is actually what we, you know, all see in our, in our clinical work, that people have that, but that's not what defines them. That's not really the only thing about their life. And we really need, I think, to shift to those portrayals. So, Mark Senor, thank you very much indeed. The title of the paper, again, is What the Highest Rated Movie of All Time May Teach Us About Portraying Suicide in Film. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much.